The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. How is a country going to grow if the tangata whenua, some 15% of the population, are overrepresented in negative stats and underrepresented in the ranks of entrepreneurs and owners? Well, that's a big question and one that can be broken down into many parts. The first of which might be, how do we get frontline Māori workers performing better, growing, improving and into upward progress? That's where Indigenous growth comes in. They work with organisations with Indigenous workers, what they term those frontline workers, to unlock their potential and increase their contribution. It's about bringing all of people to work and unlocking the same positive qualities that many of these workers have in their whānau situations. It's a great idea and business from Michael Morka, an entrepreneur, scholar and leading voice in engagement. You might have caught him at TEDx Auckland, or know him from his work with Executive Education and the Māori Students Association at Auckland University, or maybe through his love of kapahaka. Michael Mocker joins us now. G'day, how's it going? Kia ora. Kia ora, yeah. kia ora. Thank you very much, Simon. Hey, tell me about your journey into this company and how the idea of working uh, to, for the whole Fano comes into it. Mm. So let's tackle those statistics you're talking about. Uh, our, what we what we realise when we're talking about negative stati- statistics all around the world is that when you're thinking about them in terms of crime, high school dropout, teenage pregnancy, low socioeconomic demograph, what we realise all around the world is that they're usually consumed by the indigenous people of that nation. So Māori and Pacific Island here, the Aboriginal in Australia, the First Nations, African Americans, uh, you name them, they fill out those negative statistics. Indigenous growth was here to conquer those statistics for anybody who wants to get out. Right. So in terms of myself, I've always been a bit of a weirdo and an outsider. I would purposely go against the grain, even at such a young age, and people talk about their why. My why, you know, although it may sound a bit cheesy, is my family. We are part of these statistics that we talk about, and I wanted to get out. This conquering, this poverty mindset cycle. So if it's all right, I can tell you a quick story about my why. And I actually had my why, my purpose, my passion when I was 12 years old. Uh, and it's actually a big tribute to my older sister, who's three years older than me. She was absolute hero in my eyes. 
She was at third form. She was doing school seats, so that's year 11 NCEA. Uh, she was the leader of all the cultural groups she was in, the prem, prem uh, netball and softball and anything that she wanted to excel in. She was amazing. Yet she fell as part of these statistics at 15, the age that we are legally allowed to leave school here in New Zealand and Aotearoa, she left school for a job that was $60 a week. Right then, I realised that it didn't matter how talented, it didn't matter how smart and how clever you are, when you're in a poverty mindset cycle, then you just follow the green. And this is what we want to do. We know that there's a lot of talented people that are overrepresented in these negative statistics. We want to just bring that talent out so organisations are able to capitalise and also we're able to make their leadership teams more diverse. How, how did um, that decision, uh, how did that why moment lead you to then uh, really double down and commit? Because you had a, a hugely um, successful run through school uh, following on from that. Mm. It was my decision-making model. Right, so I'm a rebel, and me being rebellious, I went to school. Right? I wasn't as smart as everyone else in my family, but I went to school as many days as I could. Uh, funny story is that we were leaving to go to America to travel for Kapahaka, and um, and I still went to school because the flight was at two p.m. and the whole group was waiting for me. Right, so me being a rebel. Because everybody else wanted to quit school, wanted to smoke on the fields, do drugs, alcohol, all of that type of stuff. I wanted to be different. And I didn't realise that by me being different, it was actually by me, you know, behaving mm. in this world. So I didn't do it so I could behave. I'm doing it so I could be quite rebellious. T- tell me about how you, so you went to Kelston and ended up being uh, the head boy there, which um, uh, you, I read something that you'd written about a concept you had about servant leadership in order to um, gain respect and be able to, um, to to lead people. Tell me a bit about that. Yep. It's it's more about, you know, staying humble and remembering your, your roots. So at 15, because of the hard upbringing, uh, my now wife and I were in broken homes, as you might say, there was domestic violence and stuff. We moved out at 15 years old and uh, and we put ourselves through high school which is funny when you're signing each other's uh, parent-teacher, you know, uh, permission slips as well. And we worked our butt off and the school wouldn't even have realised. So when we made, uh, when, when I was able to make head prefect and it was a total surprise that someone like me could do that, I realised that I wanted to make sure that I earned my spot every single day. Uh, I went in and never realised how knowing every single third former or year nine's name, going into the classes and getting them all pumped up and saying, hey, you know, we can do this. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the Brotherhood of Calston. So for me, Calston was a big stepping stone and probably the first thing of stability I ever had. So in terms of Calston Brotherhood, I don't know if you've met anybody from Calston, but if you've come from Calston, you're pretty hard out, right? There's there's no way of explaining it unless you've been there for the whole five years. And with that, you, you know, you unlocked by achieving, you unlocked um, scholarships, you unlocked the ability to go to uh, Auckland University and work with a few foundations. T- tell me about how, how that happened and was that... Um, experience with the school and those um, scholarships the first time that your work had been acknowledged or your input had been acknowledged like that? 
the great thing of coming from an almost a low socioeconomic upbringing, background, teachers, all of that, uh, is that when you want something and when they see something inside of you, they give everything, right? Because they're not doing it for money. They're not getting paid what teachers should be getting paid. So when they see students like me who really, really want something, we're dreamers, uh, they just chuck the opportunities at you and you just have to catch them. Right, so in terms of gaining the scholarships, I'd never get any academic scholarships. A uh, great story I like to tell is um, we're auditory culture. I never read a book, even I didn't read my first book till after I got my university degree. Right, so I, everyone used to think that I was uh, illiterate or just had dyslexia and stuff like that. I just think I didn't have the focus to read, it wasn't my strength. Uh, but we were able to find ways, and the scholarships that I did get were scholarships that. Uh, rewarded people for being consistent, for having hard work, for stepping up when other people don't want to step up. So things like First Foundation, it's a, about empowering, a hand up, not a handout. So all of these opportunities came to somebody like me who really wanted to do something that to me was just out of, you know, out of my bubble. And during your time with uh, Auckland University, uh, you got really involved in the Multi Students Association and um, and and also uh, with Kapahaka. How important is it to have those kind of uh, environments where you're able to um, work with other Multi scholars, see other people uh, in a similar position of success when you might have come from a school that doesn't necessarily have as many other students coming to university with you? Mm. So it's that whole used to be a big fish in a small pond, say at Calston Boys. Then I went to university and I'm thinking, I'm the only one out of my family. I'm the first out of my family. I'm not the last hope. I'm the first hope. You know, I had all of these type of things in my head. And went to university and then I met a lot more Māori university students just like me. They were the first in their family. They were they wanted to do it because they wanted to serve their families. Um, you know, some people wanted to be a lawyer because their dad's in prison. Mm. And they wanted to get their dad out, right? Simple things like that. Uh, so what happened is that you are who you surround yourself with. And when I found people that were just like me from their families and their communities, we created a family within university. And I, you know, still till today, I believe what makes me different to a lot of my family members is the people that I keep around me. And these people are successful people. So we all knew we were all dreamers when we were at university. But they're successful people now. So we have architects, surgeons, politicians, lawyers, crown prosecutors. We've got all of these people that are just our mates now. And we all came from this similar background. Or we had that hunger that realized that our culture is what's making us amazing. That idea of, you know, the people who you surround yourself with, the people that you see yourself in means that you know where you can you can get, you know, you can be it if you can see it. Mm. Could you see it when you were growing up? For me, it was about knowing what I didn't want, right? So I didn't know. Uh, you know, like our family, we were four families in a four-bedroom. You didn't know if you were going to eat. There was always bread and eggs and stuff like that. But you didn't know. And the reality is everybody in our bubble was like this. So I didn't realize that other kids in, that I was going to school with had privilege upbringing or not I wouldn't even say privilege just other things that we wouldn't have like their own room or food every day or lunch every day you know we didn't realize that there was a thing because that's your bubble so for me even though I didn't see it 
I knew what I didn't want. So I had a whole list of things that I didn't want. And from that, I was able to calculate what I did want. So in terms of seeing, I'm also the youngest of my dad's children. <laughs> All right. Um, and I do have a baby brother as well. On my dad's children, I'm, I'm the youngest. And I saw everything from my, my older siblings. They were my absolute heroes, my older cousins. They were talented, amazing. Um, but they didn't fill their, fulfill their potential. Mm. So even though I didn't get all the talents, that's what I keep saying, all the skills, all the brains, I knew exactly what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to leave school at 15. I wanted to try to get a university degree. I wanted to try to get a business so when I finally do have kids, I can spend time with them, not work 16 hours a day. There were all these things that I didn't want, you know, to the point of no gambling, no violence, treating my, treating my wife properly, all of these goals. So that's what I saw, all the things I didn't want. And tell me how that kind of um, perspective, especially the whānau perspective of seeing these talents that were amongst your family, uh, but that they weren't able to bring to work, how that kind of helped spark the idea of Indigenous growth? Mm. It frustrated me, Mm. but I didn't know what what I could do. Big thing was just to work on myself first and find a way. Uh, Then I realised as I was starting to achieve success, my family, the gap started getting a bit too big. My family started thinking that I thought that I was too good for them. I couldn't bring them up, so no matter how much success I had, I couldn't bring them up with me. Uh, then I realised this isn't success, just succeeding yourself. Um, so in terms of in terms of family, I, even when I go into business meetings and they're asking for personas and who do you serve in your organisation. I introduce them to my family and the different things that they bring in and the different potentials. And I say, believe it or not, my sister, my uncle, my cousin, my mum, you have people just like this in your organisation that you don't even realise have this potential to take your, you know, almost that bottom line and increase it. What what is it? That, so so let, let's talk a little bit about what it is that Indigenous growth does, and uh, and then maybe we can look at some of the causes that actually mean that people aren't able to bring their full potential into the environments, and what you do to change that. But yeah, what what what, what do you guys? What's your kind of elevator pitch? What do you tell someone mm. at the barbecue about what what you um, what you provide? Yeah, well, that's a difficult thing because there isn't actually anything out there. Uh, when I left, I had there's no clients. I just had that vision. Our vision was to conquer the poverty mindset cycle for any of those people on the front line who want to get out. Mm. All right? And as we've started working on it for the past few, four years, we've realised that we help organisations develop the leadership capability and cultural authenticity of their existing staff. Right, So we're talking about creating leaders, using leadership frameworks. But instead of using these ones from America and all these well-researched ones, we're, we're going all the way back to cultural values. Why don't we just use our cultural frameworks as leadership values? All right, so our, our, our vision is, once again, to conquer the poverty mindset cycle. So we're not talking about poverty in terms of food, in terms of um, not having houses and stuff like that. Right? There's a lot of services for that. We're talking about that poverty mindset, having all this talent and still leaving school at 15. All right, and having all those skills and can run a whole family when it's times of crisis, can be a lead, leader, mediator, negotiator, all of this stuff. And still being, you know, a frontline staff on casual for 10, 20 years. How, how do you um, de- describe or, or define that idea of the frontline worker? And um, how does that then work out who you work with? Mm. So it's, it's people with that potential that 
are not, you know, they they really want to take up leadership opportunities or other people see that they are leaders, that they can do a lot more, but for some reason there's a ceiling, right? So we're here to break that ceiling for them and we're here to create a more diverse senior management or middle management so we work with frontline workers some of our amazing stories is that we've had somebody that's been on the same factory job for three generations him his dad and his grandfather and they've been working there all their life not once have they made anything past junior management all right and then we've worked with them for six months and they've been promoted twice in that six months not because of their you know not because of their talent and ability they always were well known for that it's about bringing who they are their whole self into work and knowing that it's an advantage a lot of people leave who they are at the door Mm. and they don't realize that organizations need them to bring the whole of themselves and they don't even know how to use that in their you know in their organizations I mean, where, where does it where does it start? Does it start with, um, you, you know, uh, traditionally going back a generation? Does it start with Maori kids being told they can't use their language in school? And does mm. it start with kids being told they're naughty? And does it start with kids being told to be quiet? And then, you, you know, do people just lose confidence when they come into these work environments? Or and, and then do they only bring the bits of the work which is I'll do what I'm told rather than I'll make my own decisions? I mean, what, what have you identified along the way here? What we've noticed, and especially with a lot of our indigenous people, so Māori and Pacific as well, is that they see these people in management and they've seen, you know, and they're not like them, right? And they're achieving what they think is success. So they're trying to copy them, right? They're trying to, okay, this person's done this, 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 this. The reason why they're doing that is because that's what they're inherently strong at, right? instead of them becoming their true authentic self and bringing who they are. But you're right, there's a lot of, we, we deal with a lot of our own people that have, right, so my parents were abu- like were hit for just saying kia ora. Mm. Uh, my nan, she was fluent and never, never taught her kids because it wasn't of value, right? So in terms of uh, the centre of our culture and our knowledge, we, right, you know, right now I never learnt any of that. Mm. Right, um, which means that we're not confident in who we are, and when you don't know who you are and where you come from, uh, then you're always looking for places to belong, right? And you're always looking at who can I copy instead of how do I be myself. So a lot of our stuff is about connecting to your momo, so your strengths, your characteristics, and making sure that in terms of a strengths-based approach, that you can now bring those in and make them into transferable skills. Right, so none of this fluffy stuff. It's not just motivation. It's not just confidence. But we use these to practically apply them into your everyday. So not just at work too, because if we can, if we can enhance your relationships with your family, we can also enhance your relationships at work. How do you identify the um, the more more the, the those skills that um, you're working with? And I, I saw and, and we'll, we'll jump to the TED uh, X t- talk soon. I really love the point you had in there about the way that a lot of um, a lot of members will will play really strong members uh, roles inside the marae or inside uh, an iwi structure or the the wider whanau or whatever. That that they don't bring those kind of um, the leadership roles, the mana they have at home into the workplace. How do you identify that and pull that into work? Mm. It's from both sides. So 
provide you know going into organizations and uh, allowing you know we're going into those organizations to create an environment so it's right for them to bring these skills mm. and a lot of it is to go with our participants or our people that we're serving and showing that actually these are qualities that are useful inside your organization right a lot of them just get a job description and just go through that a lot of them see other people and go well this person you know our managers they don't go diving they don't go to the marae they don't you know so because they haven't seen any other examples they don't realize that they are the example mm. so we know from both sides there's a there's a gap in terms of expectations in terms of what both sides can offer and we realize that we hope that we can be that bridge between that gap because what we've seen in terms of just purely the results is once these people are truly empowered then the organizations are trying to keep up all right yeah how, how do you so that kind of cultural exchange thing to mm. see the other perspective is so strong and i guess the the challenge is if you're telling people to bring their whole selves to work then work has to make space for their whole mm. selves and maybe look at doing things differently to get the most out of people um how, how do those processes go and once people start seeing the value you know do they do they roll it out further or what, what, what results have you seen yeah so the results have, been, have even exceeded ours so we would obviously go into organizations and we would sell this amazing dream <laughs> right and then once we're doing the program they were even exceeding those because all it is is uh, there's this concept we have is tahuna te ahi, which is to ignite the fire <laughs> once we've ignited that fi fire and we've given them tools so they're not just uh people that are chaotic and just okay we can do this and all of that um they can do it with structure and discipline as well um, then yeah they're starting to roll out more they're figuring out well hey if you're making this big impact with we always start off with a Maori leadership program first they're going what about the rest of our staff because mm. the thing is we're creating families right we thought oh no we're creating a cult <laughs> um, they're saying well we're creating a movement that a small group of people can make a huge change to their whanau hapu iwi so their um, to their media relationships, to their their teams, and also to their organisation as a whole, and yeah, we're starting to roll out more more programs. We're starting to do programs and saying, well, actually, the values are still universal. Uh, we can put all people of all culture on these programs. Uh, if we're all learning all these frameworks from professors of all around the world, why can't we learn cultural frameworks, right? So instead of saying um, the transactional analysis we can just say modi mm. all right they're both foreign words to the normal person but we can use these and explain them and show how you can implement them how about the role of uh it unlocking the potential in women specifically. So if I look at a lot of these frontline workers, uh, you're looking at a lot of Pacifica women, especially in places like um, aged care, uh, which is such hard work and um, so poorly paid and looked after. And, you know, there aren't those kind of paths of advancement. Um, but the, 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 the ageing population we have would fall over without them. How do you unlock the potential that you have inside big groups of women there? Mm. So diversity, and I know that's a, that, that's a key word, diversity and inclusion, um, even though it caters for a diverse group of people, it's still very similar around we need them to bring who they are to the table. Right? So even when we work with some of our wahine and our, our women, um, a lot of them, if they only see tāne, if they only see men in those positions, they're trying to 
be, you know, uh, as almost just like the male, right? Um, where actually they have their advantages, they have their their strengths, and when they bring those, right? Then just like how we operate in Māoridom, if we have nobody that does the karanga, does the call, you're not allowed on the marae, all right? If so, if we don't have those people that play their roles, then we aren't unable to achieve achieve any of those goals, right? So yeah, in terms of our wahine, it's just that same thing. Like, what is it that you have that's different to the men, and how do we make sure that you can bring those to work and you can be recognised for those values? And what kind of um, well, yeah? So so when we look at the organisations that you work with, it goes across kind of uh, government and corporate. And and I saw you saying that you know if you have more than thirty frontline indigenous or Maori uh, workers. Um, we can help you. How did you come to the 30 number? And like, um, why is that your sweet spot? What, what, what works there? Uh, with the 30 number, we, we only do programs of up to 16 people. Okay. And we're saying that, so, you know, um, where people go, oh, we don't have a wide amount because they're looking at percentage. So a company might have 5% of people that are going through. And what we're saying is that if you have just, even if you have 30 or more people, these 30 can create that tipping point so you, uh, your organisation, whether you like it or not, are going, is going to be culturally authentic. Because mm-hmm. when you create a whānau of 30, even if it's amongst thousands of people, uh, the, the amount of practical and practical application to go with their motivation of who they are, where they come from, they're able to make you know, that ripple effect in their organisation. So what we notice, just 30, and then most organisations are just starting to put more on now. Tell me about like that idea of like a, a small nucleus, you know, a whānau of 30 can, can affect change and, 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 uh, and do that. Tell me a little bit about the role of kapahaka because it's been really fascinating to see how um, that is a threat in your life. But mm. also as kind of like um, with the work that um, Dr. Peter Sharples did in, you know, in, in, uh, in elevating kapahaka and using it as one of the tools of the Māori renaissance. Uh, and it's one of those kind of um, Trojan horses of... Uh, you know, things that are kopapa Māori that are important for people that's been recognised externally? Mm. Is, is that how it's worked for you as well? It is. It's a, you know, it's a staple. It's foundation for me. I, I grew up in it. Um, during all the moving, there was one of the, something that was stable. Uh, Mason Jury said around his concept, which is well used now, uh, the whare tapu whā, uh, he said that if, you know, yes, we have spiritual, physical and mental well-being or emotional well-being, and we need to make sure that we're always strengthening those. Uh, the reality is if you do not know your cultural well-being, um, you, there'll always be, you know, you'll always be wanting more. So knowing who you are, where you come from, the activities of having culture, that's the awesome part of kapahaka. So even for somebody that wasn't brought up in Kurakopapa, that wasn't brought up at home, so I was born and raised out West Auckland, urban Māori, this gave me a connection to who I am. And then the values that we learnt where it was amazing. I don't know if you've ever been to a kapahaka tournament um, or even a kapahaka performance, but discipline is key, right? So it's not about how awesome you as an individual are, it's about how you can help the whole team succeed. So whether you're in the back row on the wing or you're the front row middle or you're the leader, it's not about how amazing you are, but just simple things like doing the woody shaking your hands, um, making sure that you're fit, making sure that you are 
able to portray the story. And the cool thing is, during the songs and the waiata and all, you know, the songs and the waiata, they're both the same thing. But during the songs and the haka and the motetia, uh, you learn stories. So a lot of my cultural well-being, it was my practical way of applying uh, and, and enhancing my cultural self. And I was able to bring these into uh, who I am. And sadly, when we were 15, my wife and I, because of this whole broken home thing, uh, we had to give up kapahaka uh, because it's a lifestyle and we had to choose ourselves and our education. Um, we went to university, even when a lot of our friends were studying and they went to all the kapahaka groups. Man, some of them weren't passing because it's it's a lifestyle, right? Um, so we... And then... then starting indigenous growth we've never really gone back in but our love for kapahaka and the realization that it has given us you know their core that everybody in any organization that i've been with they've all said that what makes me different is the cultural power that i bring mm. right and i owe a lot of that to kapahaka and the storytelling as well, which is like, you know, uh, in many ways, entrepreneurship is, uh, you know, like Steve Jobs is famous for his reality distortion. You know, he could tell a story and get everyone to believe it, even though it wasn't real yet. And mm. that's that's kind of the essence of a lot of great entrepreneurship. And, you, you know, how have you found the entrepreneur's journey and, um, and, and, and how you use storytelling in there? Mm. Same thing. So when it comes to storytelling, um, we weren't big readers. But I was told stories all my life, right? So I only know, you know, that's my, my best way of learning. And it was very much similar to Steve Jobs, so hoping for similar success in terms of, in terms of business. Indigenous growth was merely just a dream, right? Telling people how we're going to conquer the poverty cycle, where the potential is, continuously telling the stories. That is very key. And we hear about passion all the time. And to be able to communicate that passion, and I think the key part of that, just like Steve Jobs, is when he was telling that story, and you'll hear this, when I'm telling the story, it's real for me. I believe it. All right? And when I believe it, then you're going to get people who also believe it. There's some people who don't, and they go away. <laughs> but you get enough people who can support you because they also believe in the vision, the why, this thing that hasn't even been done yet. And now it's starting to become a reality where a lot of people are starting to hop on our waka, hop on our boat and realise, hmm, this crazy guy actually has some substance. And how much of that is the kind of outreach you go and do? The things like the, the TEDx talk, which if anyone will, will pop it up in the, um, the spin-off post that goes with the podcast. Uh, you know, re really powerful communication to get that story across. How do people receive it? Well, it was great. In terms of TED Talks and the bubbles that I'm that I'm in, they didn't know what TED Talks were, yeah. right? So yeah. I was working with probation, people on probation at the time, my family, oh, what's a TED Talk? I know in the corporates and university and stuff like that, it was, whoa, this is big. Um, but the fact that I was able to go there and represent my family, if you see the TED Talk, uh, instead of using all these other case studies, I'd use my uncle uh, as a prime example. Um, and the the great thing is that I had a lot of people come to me saying, I'm just like your uncle, or we have people like your uncle in our organization. We've, we've also had organizations or people from organizations call me and say, I've hired these people purely because of your TED Talk, mm. right? Because they're just like your uncle, they're just like you, and these are the potential, and if we want to grow, this is what we have to do. So to think we're making these changes just off a, a TED Talk, man, very thankful for this opportunity. Are there 
words that you live by or things you kind of tell yourself when things get tough? Mm. Um, there's this phrase that's called tūwhitia uh, te hopo. Right, so tūwhitia te hopo is feel the fear and do it anyway. Uh, so for me, when things get hard now, I'm almost excited about it, right? Because I know that's what makes me different to everybody else. So when everybody wants to give up or think, nah, you can't go to school. There's no way you're going to be a head boy. Why go to university? You don't even have a baby yet, right? All of these types of things, it almost gets me excited now. And so I've, I've put myself out there so much that um, it's become part of my daily habits. Hmm. What do you wish you'd known earlier? Like, um, it, it sounds like you really snapped into some pretty good decision-making pretty early, mm. but yeah, what, 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 do you, uh, what, what do you tell people to, to kind of pick up on earlier? Mate, it's all right to dream. Mm. We always got in trouble for dreaming, for being a dreamer, right? So for me, I, I never lost the art of dreaming, but I had to keep it quiet. You know, you don't, get, you don't learn how to dream during maths. Right? You don't learn to dream during, you know, during science and all, all, all of these, during PE. You're telling people that you want to do all of this and they go, well, you know, just go to university and get this first, right? which I still did. So anything to go, anything that I'd like to say to any of our rangatahi, any of our youth is it's all right to dream. Once you have a dream, then you have to go for it. Right? Then you have to put goals towards it. Don't just dream and then hope that it's going to come to you. Then it's about two fits to hopo. Then it's about feeling that fear and doing it anyway. Ah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Michael Moka mm. from Indigenous Growth for sharing your story with us today. Uh, we'll be posting up the links to those uh, those talks inside uh, the spin-off post. Thank you to Madeline Chapman for producing and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.